Welcome to the IBS Intelligence podcast series. Before we get into it, I'd like to mention that due to the current global situation, this podcast is being recorded from two separate locations. In this episode, I'm talking to Daniel Kornitzer, Chief Business Development Officer at Paysafe, about biometric authentication. When it comes to the age of the password coming to an end, mm-hmm. and with the rise of biometrics, what do you mean by that, and where does Paysafe fit into that narrative? I think it's it's bigger than just Paysafe. It's uh, it's the industry and sort of almost a societal issue. We've spent uh, at least one, if not more, generations. Uh, training people to use pins and passwords. So it's kind of normal that after such intense uh, conditioning of people at large, that, you know, it's hard to move on to the next technologies. I think the the value in dual factor authentication or adding, let's say, biometry as a, as a method of authenticating people goes towards, you know, getting close to the sort of the ideal scenario where you're authenticated by a combination of something you know, like a password, something you are, like a a biometric measurement, and something you possess, like a phone or a token. I mean, that's, you know, foolproof. But uh, there's always a trade-off between convenience and and security where you want to make it as seamless as possible for consumers, but not at the price of sacrificing security. So if you look, for example, at um, contactless uh, payments, which in the current uh, COVID-19 crisis, I think they're, they're quite handy because we don't have to hand the cards and type on pin pads and cutting down the, the risk of, of catching the virus. But the thing is, when you tap a card, pay pass, uh, pay wave, you're not really authenticating yourself other than with the possession of the card. So the, the next logical step is to combine possession with biometry, so whether it's facial or fingerprint, if you can, you know, tap your phone and that already includes biometry or, or for that matter, if you have a, a fingerprint sensor on the card itself, that would f- fulfill the same objective of adding biometry, uh, which adds a, a layer of uh, security to a method that's very convenient from a consumer perspective. So I see it as a, as a logical next step in fact, when you look at uh, consumer attitudes, it's true that some people are saying, you know, I don't trust biometry because I don't know it well enough. But there is a, a bit of a generation divide. Our lost in transaction, Generation Z and future payments research reports. And uh, for the group age uh, between 18 and 24, the percentage is 69%. And then it drops to 10% for 65 and and over. So seven times more in the 18 to 24 age group versus 65 plus. And that shows a a tremendous generational divide on the use of biometry, whether it's fingerprint, facial recognition, or voice activated systems. But but it's indicative of of where things are going. So I think that the the younger generations uh, like Generation Z, are, are seeing the, the value and the convenience that they can achieve through the use of, of biometry. Uh, so I think it's going to be a process where people get more familiar and accustomed to the use of biometry uh, because it's now being used as well, not just in payments. Uh, customs in, in many countries are now using facial geometry. I, I, I was on a cruise about a year and a half ago and we left out of the U.S., 
And upon leaving, of course, we showed our passport and stuff. And on the way back, I didn't have to take out my passport. So I'm like, how is that they allowed me back on US soil without checking my passport? And I realized that they had done facial geometry. And when I landed, I didn't have to like, just by taking a picture of my face, they said, you're so-and-so date of birth. Like I was like almost, you know, scary that uh, I didn't have to show my passport, but th that's where the technology is at. I mean, if you look at Amazon Go in the cashierless stores, they do use facial geometry to follow you and track your, your, your steps in the store and whether you take two or three chocolate bars and put them back and, and that technology is becoming more and more commonplace. Uh, I believe that in some countries it's probably also being used to make sure that people don't walk around in the context of the current crisis. So um, it's something that it is happening, I guess. Uh, and progressively people are, are getting more used to, to what it can provide. I mean, look, like any new technology, there are also challenges because imagine the scenario where there is a breach, let's say at a merchant or in, in some other place. And uh, in the past, it's, if my credit card gets compromised, my bank can issue another piece of plastic. But what happens when there is a breach and my fingerprint data gets hacked? Uh, what am I going to do? I'm going to cut my fingers and replace them? Like it's a, it's, a, it's a serious problem. I think that digital identity is in great need or of a better way of doing it where our data does not, as consumers, does not get uh, duplicated and triplicated because every time our data is in yet another place, it's just another breach waiting to happen. So I think we're going to move towards um, coalition or federated systems for digital identity where the bits of data are fragmented. So even if there is a breach, a fraudster can only take pieces of the puzzle, but not the entire puzzle. So not enough to cause harm. And um, it's also going to be faster, cheaper, and a lot less prone to, to breaches. So I, I think that we are sooner or later moving into that type of a, a better way of doing digital identity. And how is the financial industry now embracing this technology? This technology, well, look at things like SCA or Secure uh, Customer Authentication, which is also related to initiatives such as uh, 3DS 2.0. I think that more and more in the context in that case of PSD2 or open banking, to be able to move funds on behalf of a consumer, there is a need for a strong customer authentication and that's going to cut down on fraud and account takeovers. And so I, I do believe that it goes hand in hand with, you know, the opening of, of sort of the banking system and enabling more capabilities and, and more players so that uh, creates um uh, more competition and more innovation. So ultimately that's going to benefit uh, end users, of course, provided that those services are fully compliant with GDPR and that uh, consumer privacy is respected. But I think there is great potential for great value for, for end users uh, when you can combine sort of convenience, access to, to banking and payment services with uh, sort of bulletproof uh, technology. So uh, I do believe that that's, you know, sort of the natural trend uh, towards which the entire industry is going. What about Paysafe and your role within the company? Uh, is this something you work a lot with? I'm a technologist at heart. I, in fact, I started my career as a scientist in, in the Canadian equivalent of, of Bell Labs, you know, working on some fundamental 
research in areas like video conferencing and, and speech recognition back in the days. And then I moved into payments about 20 years ago. And uh, so I, I kind of love technology, so I'm, I'm, I'm sort of biased. Uh, so my role at the company is to establish and, and grow uh, strategic partnerships with some of the, the, the world's uh, largest uh, companies, um, you know, the, the Googles, the Amazons, the, the Microsofts, as well as with companies under common ownership because we're owned by Blackstone and CVC. Uh, so those uh, private equity firms have, you know, very large ecosystems and, and it's always great to work with uh, sister companies. But I think th- there is a, a newly found desire by companies to, to partner because they realize that um, even though you may be able to do something, it doesn't mean just because you can that you should be investing resources in that. Oftentimes you can gain great go-to-market speed by you know, picking and choosing great partners. And I think that even the, the biggest companies in the world have come to realize that uh, the, the value of partnerships. So um, it's, it's a great uh, area to be driving. In terms of uh, sort of the use of technology, um, we talked before about how digital identity can greatly benefit. I mean, th- this holy grail of combining convenience, you know, end user convenience with security, uh, leveraging biometry, behavioral analytics, uh, machine learning, so that you can actually provide great service, great convenience, but again, not at the price of sacrificing security. I mean, look at 3DS 2.0. It's providing issuers with 20 times more data pertaining to the transaction and the person doing the transaction. And uh, the expectation by the schemes is that 95% 95% of transactions are not going to require the extra validation, the extra password, but they're going to be approved on the basis of machine learning and, and, and other methods, so leveraging AI, whereas 5% will be subject to further checks and passwords. So it's a clever way to become very discriminating and not inconvenience the legitimate you know, bona fide users, but at the same time, keep the fraudsters out. The challenge is that in today's world, maybe in the past we were dealing with teenagers in their basement trying to impress their friends uh, in terms of you know hacking. But today we have those, but we have organized crime, rogue nations, uh, hacktivists like anonymous, you know, cause motivated. I mean, so the, the level of the threat has grown significantly and some of these you know you know rogue nations or organized crime have considerable resources so they pretty much have the same technologies that the good guys have i mean any company in technology in payments i think cybersecurity has to be top of mind and, and one of the top concerns so any technologies that are helping in that fight to keep the fraudsters out i think are things that we welcome uh, with with open arms Going back, you talked about the consumer maybe not being as ready to accept biometrics at the same level as some businesses. How do you think companies can best address those concerns and help adoption? Mm. So every time, I mean, whether it's biometry or automation in general, consumers have concerns and those concerns may be real or perceived. But nonetheless, uh, companies like ourselves, like you know, Amazon and other players in, in, in that space have to find ways to reassure consumers. When contactless was introduced, many people were fearful that, oh, you can just take the card and go tap. 
So what if someone takes the card from my wallet and, you know, goes and, you know, starts tapping the card and I incur uh, a ton of charges that, you know, are not authorized really. So the schemes put, you know, strict limits in terms of the maximum transaction amount. Uh, initially, they had this uh, rule that every three or five transactions, you had to enter the PIN. So you couldn't just tap, tap, tap and also a velocity check. So if, if people were tapping too much, immediately you would say, sorry, you need to enter the PIN. So try to reassure people that there are uh, mechanisms that prevent uh, the unauthorized use. If you look at, uh, for example, the cashierless stores, Amazon Go, where you walk out of the store, you feel almost like a like a thief, you know, walking walking out of the store, and then two minutes later you get the note saying, "Here is your invoice. You bought, uh, you know, three chocolate bars, you know, one uh, reusable bag, etc., cetera, etc." Cetera. In that case, consumers may say, "What if I got overcharged?" So Amazon, for example, makes it very easy to challenge an item. So let's say that they charge you for three chocolate bars and in fact you only took two, you can swipe that item on the app as you receive the uh, the invoice uh, a few minutes later and you can say, no, you know, can you please correct, I only took two, not three. Now, of course, if every item you're going to challenge, they're going to say, sir, uh, go buy a Walmart, you know, go to our competition, you know, you're, you're the customer from hell. But, but let's say if you occasionally you challenge an item because there is a mistake, they'll go on the honor system. They'll, they'll, they'll fix it. You're not going to have to be on the phone for two hours arguing that you took two and not three. So they see it as their duty to reassure the consumer that if there is a mistake, there is an easy way to recover from the mistake. After people grow confident that what you see is what you get, that there are no surprises, that the systems work as expected, then those fears go away and people become very comfortable. So it's, I think it's a normal process of adaptation where people need to, and we need to play a role in terms of alleviating those fears so that the consumer is reassured that, that what they're going to get as a result matches exactly what they were expecting to get. And I think it's the same with the use of biometry. It has to do with people being concerned with their data, who's got access to it, is it subject to a, a breach? And that's why the use of uh, technologies like tokenization, where the actual data is never uh, used, but rather a, a tokenized version of it, go a long way to reassuring uh, consumers that um, th their data is safe and, and you know their funds are safe and their data is safe. And that includes credentials, credit card numbers, bank account numbers, and, and biometry as well. For PaySafe, looking into the future as much as you can really in the situation what's what's next for you guys well i mean uh, broadly speaking i think our our job is to to leverage technology to create value end user and and, and merchant value many of the core components in payments which are really moving money from a to b are commoditized um, our role is to continue to add layers of value. Think of it as an onion where the moving money from A to B is at the core, and then you have all these layers of value add. That's where the real value lies, whether it's analytics, uh, risk management, mobile enablement. For example, take Europe, take SEPA payments, okay? Anyone can push a transaction into pipe. There is, it's hardly rocket science. But where the value lies is, if, if I'm dealing with a merchant in a certain country in Europe, to understand 
for example, we were talking about SEPA. In Europe, a consumer has eight weeks after the transaction was processed to reverse the transaction, no questions asked. All they need to do is pick up the phone, call their bank and say that transaction provided in the, in the last eight weeks, please reverse it. And the bank will, will do so, no questions asked. Conversely, uh, in the States, if you want to reverse an ACH transaction, you can do it, but the consumer has to go to the bank and sign an affidavit uh, swearing basically under oath that that transaction was fraudulent. And if they're lying, it's a federal crime. So people are reluctant to put their signature and say that it was fraud when in fact it wasn't. But someone could feel very comfortable calling the bank and saying, just reverse the transaction. So that means for a merchant that if they're using SEPA in a certain country, in a certain vertical, they may end up with a lot of bad debt or, or reverse transactions or chargebacks uh, or losses, basically. And that's where the value lies. Is It's not pushing the transaction into a pipe. It's understanding the method is it you know well suited to the merchant giving advice help merchants reduce their losses their chargebacks their returns that's an example where you know the, the value add that we can bring uh, as an expert in payments and it's those layers of value add and more broadly is trying to use technology not not for the elegance of technology even though I'm an engineer and I, I love technology but you know we talked about convenience with security combining the two is fantastic other examples are leveraging AI to create mass customization. I mean, I always say that with the advent of the Amazons and the Walmarts and the Costcos, we've gained tremendous economies of scale. The cost of goods to the consumers have lowered significantly, but in the process, we've all become numbers. Now, gone are the days where we used to have a, a personal relationship with the owner of a mom and pop store, right? the owner of a restaurant that knew exactly what kind of meals we liked, the owner of a clothing store that knew exactly, you know, what type of shirts I, you know, I like. Now we've lost a lot of that, but AI has the potential to re-inject that level of customization, but this time using technology. So I could be in Vegas, for example, and I've never been to a certain store, but they know that I'm a customer of the brand and I can get an SMS from the manager of the store say, hi, Daniel, I know you love, you know, Hugo Boss. I know you've never been to our store and we don't know each other, but I'd love to invite you for coffee. And by the way, we just got the spring collection and I'd love to give you 20% off the entire collection. So it's not spam, it's very relevant. And whether I pass or not on the offer, I'm going to feel like a million dollars. I'm going to feel valued and appreciated for my patronage. So AI, in a way, can somehow recreate that mass customization, mass personalization that we've lost. Another example that I often cite is the use of smart contracts, which are prevalent in sort of the blockchain area, where, for example, I pay my electricity bill in, in Florida every month. I get a bill. Imagine if instead of, you know, right now it's all or nothing. I could tell my bank, pay them all, or I can say, send them to me and I'm going to authorize one by one. But imagine if I could create a smart contract that says, if the bill for electricity is between $50 and $120, approve it on the spot, automatic, I don't need to see it. Now, if it's less than $50, I want to see it because maybe my air conditioning broke down and I need to send the repair man to take a look. And if it's over $120, maybe my kids left all the lights on and my bill is $300. So imagine if I can automate 98% of the instances by keep control over the exceptions and the anomalies, which may represent 2 or 3%. That's the best of both worlds. 
because I automate everything that can be automated, but I retain control over the outliers. So th those are examples, they're very concrete examples where technology, and we talked about digital identity, that if done in a coalition federated way, could increase speed, lower cost, and make breaches something of the past. These are four examples, not abstract, but very concrete examples where technology can create real value for consumers. And at the same time, as well for merchants, because those merchants that take advantage of AI and can provide better, you know, more customized service are going to do better than others that ignore the use of technologies. I mean, Professor Andrew Eng at Stanford you know, likes to say that there is something fundamental about embracing AI. And he says, a brick and mortar merchant with a website is not an internet merchant. And an internet merchant with a neural network is not an AI merchant. To embrace AI is something fundamental, and it means changing the very way the company works. It means changing where the decisions are made. It means combining all the data into a single warehouse so that you can gain a cross view of all your interactions with your customers, as opposed to having siloed databases where you see only, imagine if my bank had a separate database for investments, for mortgages, for car loans, for insurance, they would never get a cross view of everything they do with me as a consumer. So they could never serve me better. They can never do effective uh, risk management because the, the, their views are, are really um, like the horses, very limited. Uh, so I think that th that's the type of value that in this case, artificial intelligence can, can bring to companies that embrace it fully and use it as a tool for value creation for their customers. I can't think of a time where there was more opportunity and more, I mean, right now we're in the midst of a crisis, so it's hard to think, you know, uh, how life is going to be after COVID-19. But I do believe that the proper use of technology could generate a lot of good value for the society at large, help in areas like financial inclusion. And, and uh, I do believe strongly that companies of all sizes can, can do well by doing good. And that's sort of a mantra that I'd like to follow.